But anyway, let's see, let's see what God's going to do with it today. Now, today's subject um, has really come out of, I think, challenges that I've, I've had for myself. And so, in a sense, it's based on my own journey. It's, I haven't read a book or um, anything, and um, it's my own view on what some might see as quite a difficult subject. So I'm just saying, you don't have to agree, okay? Paul tells us, test all things. Um, but I do feel I've been sitting on this message for probably a couple of months now, um, and I feel is something God is saying to the church at the moment. Now, there are loads of theories out there um, about the return of Jesus. In fact, if you look on YouTube, you can see all sorts of people putting all sorts of theories forward. I'm not pushing any particular theory this morning. That's not my intention at all. But what I can say is that Jesus is coming back. That is absolutely definite. And what I can say is, it will be soon. Now, I say that with all authority because that's what Scripture says. It says it many times, in many places, in different ways. And even Jesus says, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Other versions use the word quickly. I'm coming quickly. Now, how come Jesus said he's coming soon when it's been 2,000 years? 2,000 years since he ascended. And he told us that he would come back. Now, listen to what was said at the time of the ascension. He... That's Jesus. I've put that in brackets. That's not in the Bible, just so you know who's speaking. He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and the cloud hid him from their sight." They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. Now it's really important we take notice of the words of Jesus. Only the Father knows the time and the date. As I said, there's a lot of crackpot theories out there, but only the Father knows the time and the date. We're not meant to look for the time and the date, but we are told to look for the signs. We are told to be ready. And that's really my point this morning. We are told to be ready. Now, I was asked only recently by someone, why does the Bible say he's coming soon? 2,000 years isn't exactly soon. Well, I'll give you my answer. Peter tells us that a 1,000 years is but a day in God's eyes. Against the whole spectrum of time and eternity, 2,000 years is nothing to God. You know, the Bible talks about the last days, and people often talk about the last days, but that actually began at Pentecost, when the Spirit was poured out on the church. The church was born. That's when the last days began. Peter then carries on, he gives us a second reason why it, it might seem a bit of a delay in Jesus' coming, and it's this. 
The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God is giving everyone time to come to repentance. In fact, Peter goes on to say a little later, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. God is being kind in the waiting. That's because he's giving more time for people to come to salvation. And that's really what the parable of the ten bridesmaids was all about, or the ten virgins, whichever version you read. The the bridegroom was taking longer than expected. And in the waiting, some of them went to sleep. In the waiting, some of them ran out of oil. Five of them didn't have enough oil to keep their lamps burning. But Jesus was warning us, it may seem a long while. It may seem slow in the coming. But he is coming. And that's the important point. He is coming. He is returning. And it's nearer now than the time when Jesus made the promise. It's nearer now than the time you became a Christian. It's nearer today than it was Yesterday, he is coming, he will return. But I think there's yet another reason why he uses that word soon. And that is what that parable of the bridesmaids is all about. He wants us ready. He doesn't want us to fall asleep. He doesn't want us to compromise. He he doesn't want us to get distracted. He wants us alert. Now this is what Jesus says in Luke 21. Can you move it on, please? Oh, you have, sorry. <laughs> um, no, no, you haven't. Next one. That's it, thank you. Be careful not to spend your time in feasting, drinking, or worrying about worldly things. If you do, that day might come on you suddenly like a trap on all people on earth, so be ready all the time. Take note of that bit. I've even put it in red. Be ready all the time. Pray that you'll be strong enough to escape all these things that will happen and that you will be able to stand before the Son of Man. Quite like the way the message actually puts that bit. Don't fall asleep at the wheel. Something that politicians are often accused of, isn't it? So, let's be ready. Jesus is coming back. Now, I believe much of the prophetic in the Bible has been fulfilled. That tells me that it is getting closer. But there is still a little bit of prophetic yet to go, I believe. Many leaders, and Bible teachers and such, they're getting excited because they believe that God has yet to fulfill the prophetic about an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Greater than anything we've seen yet. Now, many respected men of God have prophesied it. Hudson Taylor saw it in a vision. Um, Smith Wigglesworth prophesied it as well. And if we go into Scripture, Habakkuk tells us that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We haven't seen it yet. Isaiah tells us that the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together. It hasn't happened yet. Joel tells us that before the day of the Lord comes, that great and terrible day, God will pour out his spirit on all flesh. And I don't believe those promises have been fulfilled in their entirety yet. Now, it started at Pentecost. God poured his spirit out at Pentecost. That was the beginning of the fulfillment. But many believe there is more to come. 
There's a greater, fuller fulfillment, if you like. And, and, you know, I hope to live to see it. Now, I'm not prophesying that, but I do. I really hope that I live to see it. So I'm not making predictions. The time scale is completely up to the Father. But I do sense there is a call on the church to prepare, to get ready, make yourselves ready. Now, even if I'm totally wrong on all of this, the call in Scripture is still, make yourselves ready. Jesus is coming back. Now, this morning's subject is holiness. I even thought about calling this morning the beauty of holiness, because there is beauty in holiness. I feel that there is a new call on the church towards holiness. And it is part of the process of making ourselves ready. Now, it's not a new call. It's always been there. But many feel that the call is being renewed. It's being intensified. And I find it really interesting that in so many of the parables and in the letters of Paul and Peter and John, when holiness is mentioned, it is so often in the context of the return of Jesus. Now, something that I've actually only just cottoned on to, to be perfectly honest, holiness and the preparation for the return of Jesus seems to go hand in hand. Now, I'll try and explain why I feel the call to holiness is being intensified. Now, how many of us have been involved in a wedding? Most of us, I would think. I've had two daughters, so yeah, um, most of us. It's an important day, isn't it? A really important day, not least for the bride. Now, if you've ever been closely involved in the preparations, you'll know that it starts months beforehand. There's the dresses to choose, the flowers, the venue, and even on the day, there's the hair, there's the makeup. I could go on. And it's all for a good reason. The bride wants to look her best. It's not just for the photos or the guests, important as they are. She wants to look her best for the bridegroom. And as she walks through the door, she wants to look her best for the bridegroom because she wants him to turn around and go, wow. Just thinking back to my own wedding. I went, wow, as well. And I still think she scrubs up quite well. Um, But anyway... (laughs) Uh, Sorry. Um, But picture this. The door of the church opens and in walks the bride, hair all over the place, looking unkempt, no makeup, dress torn, crease, hadn't seen an iron, stained. And the bridegroom, what's he going to be thinking? I could be making the biggest mistake of my life. Now, church, we are the bride. Amen? We are the bride. Father God wants a bride that is fit for his son. He doesn't want a bride dressed in filthy rags. In in fact, scripture, it actually talks about being dressed in white robes. And this is John's account in Revelation. He's given that glimpse into heaven. And it says, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. 
And I really do feel that the time has come for the bride to make herself ready. The bridegroom is coming. Now, Peter writes this in his first letter. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming as obedient children... Do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. Now, can you see that double theme there again? Holiness and Christ's return. And it was obviously a subject that was so dear to Peter's heart. Now remember, he received a promise direct from his Lord. He was there when he saw Jesus being taken up. He was there when the angel spoke to the disciples and made that promise of his return. So Peter makes it a key theme of both his letters. Look at what he says in his second letter. What kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day and speed it's coming. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? Can we really speed his coming? Does it mean the sooner we get our act together and live in holiness, holiness, the sooner Jesus will return. I'll I'll leave you to think about that one. Um, So what do we mean when we talk about holiness? Well, first of all, I just want to make it clear, it's not the same as righteousness. So can I just reaffirm to you that if you are a follower of Jesus here this morning, you are already righteous. Righteousness is a, a gift it's, it's, it's something that was imparted to you because of the cross. When Jesus died, all our sin, past, present, and even future, was laid upon him. Some call it the great transaction of the cross. He who had no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. I mean, that's such an awesome truth that we are righteous. You know, all your sin was laid on him and in return we become completely righteous. And that means the way to the heavenly throne room is open. We can enter in. So righteousness is a gift. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. You don't deserve it. You simply accept it. No, um, sin has been dealt with. You are no longer a sinner. And Sam told us recently, you may still sin, but you are a saint who sometimes sins, not a sinner. That's no longer your label. That's a lot different to being a sinner. When the Father looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus over your life. He sees the robe of righteousness And he is satisfied. You may enter into his presence. That's an amazing truth. But holiness is not the same as righteousness. Let's see what Paul says. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. So can you see that holiness is a journey? To use educational jargon, it's something we are working towards. 
Now, if you want a little bit more clarity, we can look at the amplified version. And that says, So now offer your members your abilities, your talents, as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. That is being set apart for God's purpose. So we've got two concepts there. We have the idea of being set apart. Set apart for a purpose. God's purpose. Did you know you have God's purpose over your life? You are set apart for that purpose. You are no longer your own. You are his. If you're a follower of Jesus, your whole direction of life is now submitted to him. That's what being set apart is all about. You're set apart for him and him alone. And then we have that word sanctification. Now, the dictionary defines sanctification as this, the action of making something holy, the action or process of being freed from sin and purified. So now, we've got that word sin that has raised its ugly head, and it's a subject, as Graham told us recently, we don't often talk about or like to talk about, but it is a really important consideration, especially for followers of Jesus, because we know that's what took Jesus to the cross, so that we could be freed from sin. Now, we could enter into big discussion about sin. I'm not going to. All I'm going to say is, if you are a follower of Jesus... You will know if a course of action, if a pattern of behavior, if a way of thinking is likely to be sinful because I do believe that the Holy Spirit within you will make it very clear to you. In fact, sometimes I've had people ask me, is this a sin? Is this action a sin? Is what I'm doing a sin? I often think if you have to ask, you probably know the answer because you're already being made uncomfortable. And I think that's what the Holy Spirit does within us. It makes us uncomfortable if we're actually going in the wrong direction. It troubles our peace. Yeah? It troubles our peace. The Holy Spirit will disturb our peace when we embark on the slippery slope into something um, that isn't right. Now, there's a word in Hebrew that's often translated peace, and I'm sure you all know what it is. It's shalom, one of my favorite words. It is peace, but it's more than peace. It's well-being. It's harmony. It's wholeness. It's welfare. It's completeness. In fact, I believe it's everything that God wants for us. That's shalom. And it's a word that's so rich and deep in meaning. But sin disrupts my shalom. And the definition that I tend to use for sin is anything that disrupts shalom. See, I can disrupt shalom in others if I'm unkind, if I pull somebody down, if I demean them. And more extremely, if I abuse them, if I oppress them, and you know, you you get the drift, don't you? That will disrupt somebody's shalom. But sin will also disrupt my own personal shalom. Why is that? Because sin leads to death. That's what scripture tells us. The wages of sin is death. If we make an agreement with sin, if we compromise with sin, if we allow it to stay and to fester, I do believe that our spirit 
begins to suffer. It begins to die. James says this, temptation comes from our own desires which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. Seems a funny way of putting it, doesn't it? Give birth to death. But another translation puts it this way, when sin is fully mature, it can murder you. So, here's a question for you. Why does God hate sin so much? Now, let's be really clear. God does not hate the person who sins. Nicola reminded us of the demon head teacher when she was speaking a little while back. You know, this image of someone who gets really angry with every tiny demeanor. And I'm sure Satan wants us to have that image of God. But that is so not our Heavenly Father. God does not hate the one who sins. It's the sin itself that God hates. And the reason why God hates sin so much is because he loves you. It's so simple. He hates sin because he loves you. He wants the best for you. He wants abundant life for you. Jesus told us that he wants abundant life. The thief comes only in order to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and enjoy life and have it in abundance. And then the Amplified Version says, to the full till it overflows. Now the journey to holiness is also the journey to abundant life. Life in all its fullness. That's what Jesus wants for you, all of you. He wants abundant life for you. And this is how I tend to see it, very simplistically perhaps. I've done a little graph. And that's how I see it. The trajectory with Jesus is always upwards. It's always being changed for the better. Changed from glory into glory. That's what Jesus wants for you. Life in all its fullness, abundant life. And that's what life with Jesus is meant to be all about. Now we often say that Jesus accepts you just as you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. Because we're always meant to embrace change. We're always meant to be constantly transformed to continue on that road of sanctification that leads to holiness, that leads to abundant life. But sadly, sin, of course, has the opposite effect because it leads to death. Now, Jesus teaches us to be absolutely ruthless with sin even tells us if our eye leads us into sin, pluck it out. If our hand leads us into sin, cut it off. It seems a bit heavy, doesn't it? Now, he's not teaching self-mutilation. I'm absolutely sure of that. What he is teaching you is be ruthless with sin. Don't mess around with it. It's poison. It really is. It's poison. You'll be harmed by the poison if you compromise with sin. Now, Let's come to the practicalities. And as Brian reminded us recently, we always need the yes, but how bit. And this is how do I deal with sin? Now, let's be real and let's be honest. It's a struggle we all have. I have it. You have it. We're being real about it. The worst thing we can do in church is pretend we've got it all sorted and we've no longer got a struggle. Um, It's not right. We haven't got it all sorted. Everybody has their struggles. They may be different, but they are 
real. And the writer to the Hebrew Christian, he talked about their struggle against sin, or as the message version puts it, this all-out fight against sin. And that's what it is. So, good place to start. What does the Bible say about it? This is a really good bit of advice. Take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. That's what Paul says. Now, I've tried to train myself to recognize thoughts that aren't God thoughts. And sometimes it can be somebody who's hurt me or criticized me and my thoughts start to wonder about how I can get even. And, and No, that's, that's not a God thought. Or it might be one of those unhelpful pictures or the videos that can pop up on Facebook that starts to take my mind off to where it shouldn't be. And, you know, there's so many things that will come into our minds and distract us and take us down a route we don't want to go. And the enemy, he really is very good at it. But what I've actually tried to train myself to do is when my mind starts to wander into those areas, I have asked the Holy Spirit to make me feel so uncomfortable and help me to recognize that thought and then ask Jesus to help me to take it captive and make it obedient to Christ. Now, this is important because the place where it starts, as we know, is in here. It's in the mind. Now, I don't always manage it. I'm being perfectly honest. I don't always get it right. As I said, the enemy is very clever with his tactics. But learning to recognize those tactics is so important and it's really helpful. The next thing is the Bible tells us to fill our minds with the better things. If we take something out, let's put something back in, something that's good, something that's better, something that's pure. And Paul says this, finally believers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable and worthy of respect, whatever is right and confirmed by God's word, whatever is pure and wholesome, whatever is lovely and brings Peace, there's that word again. Whatever is admirable and of good repute, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think continually on these things. Center your mind on them and implant them in your heart. There is so much rubbish out there, isn't there, that people fill their minds with. And I believe the enemy makes sure there's lots of rubbish out there. We can fill our minds with them. Now, a lot of those things aren't wrong. Now, this is not a sort of judgmental thing, but sometimes they can just give us a focus that isn't helpful. And all I'm saying is, be careful what you let in. Be discerning about what you let in. Not everything is true, pure, honorable, such like, or brings peace. We need the things that bring peace. And that leads me on to another point. You are not alone. Whether your battle is against addiction, habits, behavioral issues, lusts, all those things, whatever you struggle with, you are not alone. Someone's been there before, and probably someone is right there now. As someone said to me recently, I think I have an addictive personality. And my answer was, I think we all have. It might be different things that you know, we tend to find that we can be addicted towards, but I think we are all hardwired to be addicted because we are meant to be addicted to Jesus. So we have that addictive personality. It's meant to be Jesus. Sometimes you've probably heard people say in the past, you know, we have a God-shaped hole in our lives. Sadly, 
most people don't reach out to Jesus to fill it. They reach out with all the stuff that the world offers us to try and fill the void. But it never does. It never satisfies. And that's the nature of sin. Once it gets a hold of us, it just wants more. And it takes us down a road we don't really want to go down. Sin is always expensive. Here's a quote for you. I couldn't find out who um, originally said it. It's attributed to several people. That doesn't matter. The truth of it is there. Sin will take you further than you ever expected to go. It will keep you longer than you ever intended to stay. And it will cost you more than you ever expected to pay. But remember, you are not alone. Don't be afraid to reach out to someone you trust. If it's something that's deep-rooted, we might need to find a little bit of extra help for you. But never agree to settle with sin in your life. It really is poison. Now, you know, patterns of wrong behavior, sins that repeat, what some people call habitual sins or besetting sins. Jesus wants you free. He really does. He wants you free from them because they cause damage. Now, most of us, we're not able to fight the battle alone. And I don't think we're meant to, to be perfectly honest. We can try doing it on our own. We can decide, I'm not going to do that sin again. And we can mean it. And we can manage it for probably about eight hours. And then we wake up. And then you start thinking, I'm not going to do that sin again. What's the first thing you're thinking about? The thing that you don't want to do. There has to be a better way, doesn't there? And there is a better way. Find someone you trust someone you can confide in, get them to pray with you, be a little bit accountable. But the other thing is, of course, you're not alone because you've got Jesus. You have Jesus with you. One thing that sin wants to make you do is to hide, to hide from Jesus. I know in the past when I've been, you know, going the route I shouldn't be going, the last thing I want to do is go to church, the last thing I want to do is read the Bible, the last thing I want to do is pray. Um, We hide And it's so important we don't hide. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden, wasn't it? The first sin, what did they do? They hid, and God had to come looking. It wasn't that God was hiding behind a tree saying, there's sin there, I can't go near it. God came looking for them. They were the ones who were hiding, not God. Not God. God comes looking, he still comes looking. Now, if I've learnt anything with my struggle, it's this. Turn towards God and not away. Just what Steve shared this morning. You see, it's God's problem too. And I've taught myself to say when I'm struggling, Jesus, we have a problem. Jesus, we have a problem. I need some help here. And if you are a believer, you have the spirit of Jesus within you. And that is so powerful. The one who is within you is greater than the one who is within the world. You share the struggle with Jesus and he has promised never to let you struggle alone. Now there's some wonderful promises in scripture about this. But I'm going to finish with just one. And that is this one. You will guard him and keep him in perfect and constant peace whose mind, both his inclination and his character, is stayed on you because he commits himself to you, leans on you, and hopes confidently in you. Now, do you notice that word peace again, which I've outlined in red, because that word is shalom. He will keep you in perfect shalom. Everything that God wants for you if you turn to him, if you ask him to help you 
in your struggle? Who wants to be kept in perfect shalom? I certainly do. And if you want that, fix your thoughts on Jesus. Put your mind on Jesus. Put your trust on Jesus. Get addicted to Jesus. You will not regret it. There was a lady called Helen Lemmel. She wrote a hymn back in 1918 that showed that she understood how to win the battle over sin. And this is what she wrote. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Shall we pray? I just want to say as I pray, don't see this as you mustn't do this, you mustn't do that. It's so not where I am coming from. Neither is it, let's start looking for hidden sin or anything like that. That's not your job. That's the Holy Spirit's job. But what I am actually talking about this morning is commit to the journey. Set your face like flint towards his holiness. Ask the Holy Spirit to challenge within you anything that isn't good, that isn't pure, and commit to removing that poison from your life. So we just have a moment of quiet where we just say, Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Just ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you about anything that he wants you to sort in your life. And maybe he just wants to say, well done. Well done for you. You keep coming back to me. After all the struggles, you keep coming back to me. And I know that's true for somebody here today. God really pleased that you keep coming back to him. If you feel the Holy Spirit is challenging you about anything, Commit to the journey. Come and talk to someone. Get some prayer if you need to. But let's just be open to the Holy Spirit leading us on that path to the beauty of holiness. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. Amen.